It takes a village to raise a child. We all know that, right? But what happens if you can't find your village? Because raising your child is really, really tough. What if you are so filled with shame and doubt and guilt and fear of judgment that you don't share your triumphs and your struggles? You don't talk about it because you don't think anyone can possibly relate. Well, I've been there, and it was really hard for me to find my tribe. So I decided to make mine. I went out and found these amazing mothers who are also in the trenches, struggling to raise their kids. Together, we are a community. And in this podcast on the hard days, you'll find motivating stories from other real moms who get it. We're going to accept who we are and how we show up for our children each and every day, even on the hard days. Welcome back, everybody. I am so, so pumped to have with me an amazing mom. She's a mom of four. Um, she has a neurodiverse, out-of-the-box kid, just like we all do. This is Jody Warshawski. And um, first of all, Jody, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's an honor to be here. Oh, I was taken aback when I first found you um, on Instagram, actually, with the way that you advocate with no shame for your child. And I would love for you to take us back and, and start from the beginning. Tell us your story and tell us about your family. Okay. Gosh, there's there's many different stories here, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about how I found myself as um, a special needs mom, I guess. I had, uh, I, I, I had two kids young. Uh, it's not young for everyone, but I was young in my thinking and just maturity. I was uh, 22 <clears throat> when, um, when my first son was born and 24 when my second son was born. And we always wanted a really big family, but having two little ones um, at that time, it just felt a little overwhelming. Um, but I loved being a mom. And I always thought that uh, being a stay at home mom, that was what I was meant to do, or it was always my dream. And I think part of that is because I was raised by my grandparents. And that was that was how it was in their day. It was dad goes to work, mom stays home and takes care of the, the family. And so that's how my life was set up. My husband worked and I stayed at home with the kids and, um, and it was, it was great. It was great. But um, after about, we always wanted more kids. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, our youngest Tyson is eight. <laughs> like if we want more kids, we should probably get on that. So <clears throat> um, I was pregnant with Remy and um, I was convinced that I was only going to be a, a mom of boys. And I was like, I'm sure, I'm sure this child's going to be a boy and um, went to the ultrasound, found out that she was a girl. And there was just this, this like feeling inside of me that was like, okay, this, this is it. Like I'm having a girl, someone that I could relate to someone that I could pour my wisdom in. Cause you know, I, I, I feel like I've navigated friendships and heartache and all of that. And I felt like, 
um, I could be a really great mom of a girl. And, and I think that was, um, without realizing it, that was the very first mistake I was making was fantasizing about this little girl with pigtails and dresses and the sleepovers that we would host and the birthday parties and one day prom and, and, and walking her down the aisle and having grandkids. And, and, you know, it, I spent lots of nights just dreaming of those moments, like, oh, we're going to have so many of these amazing moments. And, um, and, and I felt like that because being a mom of boys felt a little bit hard. They were rough and climbing trees and getting dirty. And we watched every single superhero movie. And I'm like, gosh, I need some girl in the house. And so when she was born, she just lit up our family. Her name is Remy. And, um, and like, I, I, I know that I'm the mom and, and, uh, of course I would think this, but there was something really special about her from the beginning. Um, she just lit up the room and everyone was just in love with her, just always smiling, always just carefree. And, and one of the first things that I noticed is she didn't cry. And I, and I never knew a baby could not cry. And people would be like, well, what happens? How do you know she's hungry? And I'm like, I don't know. She grunts and then I feed her and she's good. Like she was, she was a perfect little baby. And, um, so there was nothing about her that, that said special needs, medical needs, there, there just wasn't, I didn't see anything, but I also didn't know what to look for either. And, um, one day we woke up, it was a Friday morning and she used to sleep in between me and my husband because I was nursing her and I love sleeping with my babies. <laughs> so um, we woke up and she was fussy and that wasn't like her, but it it seemed like she was having a bad dream or she was uncomfortable. I don't know. She just was kind of grunting and seemed really unsettled and she wasn't sick or anything. So I just, I don't know. I just figured she just was having a bad dream. So I got out of bed and went to go make coffee. And I asked my husband, I'm like, can you like pat her back to sleep? And he would, he would hold, he would hold our babies and like pat them on the butt. And it always settled them. Um, I tend to get a little bit more frustrated. So he took over and he was holding her and I went into the other room and it wasn't very long where he said, Jody, something's wrong with Remy. And I I could tell in the tone of his voice that it was, it was something serious. And I, I ran in so confused and I'm like, what's wrong. And, and he's like, she's, she's just, she's not moving. She's, she's stiff. And um, I looked at her and it looked like she was dying. It was so fast. All of the color left her face, her lips turned blue, her nose, she was turning blue and her, eyes were staring out and she was completely stiff. And I thought we were watching our daughter die and I couldn't figure out why. The only thing that came to my mind was she's choking, like turn her upside down and slap her on the back. And, and he's like, she didn't have anything in her mouth. What would she be? And I was like, okay, yeah, like that doesn't make sense. 
So, um, so we called 911 and I'm on the, I'm on the phone, this on speaker with 911 and they're saying, okay, you need to give her mouth to mouth. And it, it then became an out of body experience. Like a minute before that I was making coffee, everything was fine. We were trying to figure out what we would do for the day. And then now we're giving mouth to mouth to our daughter. I just, it wasn't catching up to me. It was happening so fast. So our house fills with paramedics and they pull me aside and they're say they said, she's having a seizure and we're going to give her medication and, and it's going to be better. And, and, you know, this is typical, especially with a fever. And I was like, she doesn't have a fever. Like that's what the first thing I checked when she was fussy. And, um, a few minutes later, they said, um, it didn't work. She's still seizing. Um, so we're going to take her to the hospital and I would look over at her on the bed and she would kind of start moving around. Like she was coming out of the seizure and then she would stiffen back up. And it was the same thing. It happened over and over and over. So we're driving, we're driving to the hospital and I'm just praying, please let her live. Please let her live. And we get to the hospital, we're sitting in there, the room fills with all kinds of people just hooking her up and trying to do whatever. Um, They had tried to give her medication, I think it was probably four times. And they said, there's nothing else we could do. We need to, we need to like give her a paralytic and intubate her and give her something really strong that would prevent her from breathing, which is why they would have to intubate her. So I said, do whatever you need, just save her. And so they did that and they stopped the seizure. But at that point she had been seizing for 45 minutes. So, um, we get transferred to another hospital and, and, and this story can be way longer than I'm making it now. But, um, over the the next few days, she had several more seizures like that, even though she was having all of this medication And all of the doctors and the residents and the neurologists were like, I don't know what this is, but it's rare. And um, so they did all of the tests that they could in the hospital. They did a spinal tap and a CT scan and a MRI, and they did some blood tests. And they said everything, they did an EEG, which is where they put like electrodes on your head and measure your brain waves. They did that. They did all of it. And they said, everything looks normal. We don't know why this is happening. Um, But most of the time, you'll never get an answer. So they were like, all right, you can go home. (laughs) And we were like, wait, what? Um, What do you mean we could go home? What do we do with this child? What if she has another seizure? And they were like, just call us back. And, And we're like, okay. So we take her home and Zach and I, my husband, Zach, we start taking turns sleeping so that one person could always be watching her. And, and that worked for a while, but we also had two other kids to take care of. And, and I just was like, how do, how do we do that? How do we survive? I don't know how, I don't know how to do that. I didn't know anyone else. I kept because I had put something out on social media, it was Facebook at the time. And and I would get people saying, Oh, my kid had a seizure one time, or I know someone with epilepsy and every, every, everyone's story, it was helpful, but none of them were like Remy's. None of them were 
seizure won't stop turning blue, not breathing, like none of them were like that. And so it felt like we'll never know what, what has happened. And, um, over, over some more time, they got the genetic test back and it, it, uh, they said it's a, the, the doctor called me and said, um, we, we know what it is. Um, and we'd like you to come in and, and, we were two hours away from the hospital and I'm like, no, just tell me. And she said, it's PCDH 19. And I'm like, what's that? She's like, well, just don't look it up. And I'm already typing it in Google. I'm like, of course I'm going to look it up. And I said, what is that? And, and um, she said, well, it's kind of like Dravet syndrome. And I'm like, what's that? And I'm looking up Dravet syndrome and I'm, I'm reading about it and I'm just, so sad because it, um, I quickly see that it's a lifelong disorder. There's no cure. It's drug resistant. It comes with many other things, not just seizures. It comes with, um, you know, autism, OCD, schizophrenia, uh, ADHD, just the whole slew of neurodiversities. And, um, and I, and I, and I felt calm. Cause I'm like, Oh, well, she doesn't have any of th- those other things, just the seizures. So, um, so because of that diagnosis, we got her in early intervention, just based on the diagnosis alone. I wasn't concerned that she was behind in any way. Just, I'm like, well, if it could help, then that's great. And, um, and through that, I started to learn, learn about speech and learn about, um, just development and all of that, which I never knew anything about. And towards the end of that, um, that year, I, I started asking, do you think that Remy has autism? And everyone I asked said, oh, no, 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 no. She's way too social. She's, she makes eye contact. She's way too social. Um, there's no way. Every single person that I, I asked had that response. And so I'm like, all right. Okay. But there was just something that was just unsettled in me. I would be settled for like, uh, for a moment when people would dismiss that um, she might be autistic. But then after I just, there was just, I just wasn't what I didn't, it didn't feel settling. And so someone said, well, why don't you get her tested? And I was like, what? (laughs) This is real. Like, Okay. And so um we got a test right away. It two weeks after that conversation is when our test was scheduled. And I became a crazy person and started researching about autism. Like I've probably read every single site that says the word autism in it. And um, because I wanted to diagnose her myself before someone else told me whether she had it or I just wanted to know. And so I was looking, I was calling, calling her from across the room to see if she would turn, turn towards me. I was seeing if she made eye contact. I was just looking at everything. And um, <clears throat> one of the things that, that I read about autism is that kids don't pretend play. And um, so one day when the speech therapist came over, I said, you know what? She doesn't have autism because she pretend plays. And she's like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, okay, I'll show you. And I, I busted out this like 
barnyard thing. And, um, and I'm like, Remy, um, and, and I gave Remy a bunch of little animals and, and, uh, she was like playing with the animals and I'm like, see, like if she, if she had autism, she wouldn't be doing this. And the speech therapist was like, well, but what is she doing with the animals? Is the cow eating the grass or is the, you know, is the hen, um, wondering how her babies are. And, and, and I looked at Remy and I was like, no, she's just lining up the animals in the barnyard. And that's when I just knew I'm like, okay, I don't know if it's autism, but this isn't typical of her age. So fast forward, we get the diagnosis and, um, leaving, leaving that office, she said, yep, she's autistic here's a pamphlet. I don't know what the pamphlet said, probably nothing. And, um, it was kind of like, good luck. (laughs) So, um, that, that is, that's the, that's the beginning of the journey. And, and we were just overwhelmed with the seizure stuff. She'd been hospitalized, um, several times. Um, the longest one at that time was six weeks. She spent 45 days in the ICU having a hundred seizures a day. They couldn't stop it. They couldn't, they couldn't find a medication that would work. They tried a couple that were, were pretty scary that changed her. Um, but she came back from that. Um, and at the same time, when we were in the hospital for 45 days, I was ready to have another baby. People would see me in the hallways. Oh, when are you due? I'm like, tomorrow. They're like, how are you going to do that? I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to have a baby. And my other one is in the hospital. Um, and it ended up being that my family came and was watching Remy and I went to a different hospital and had Nora and then came back and sat with Remy and my newborn, which everyone said, don't bring a newborn into the ICU. And I said, what other choice do I have? Um, and I just remember thinking, how do we do this? How can I have a newborn, two other kids at home and we're in the hospital all the time. So, um, that's when, that's when it was very apparent that I needed to, um, learn how to advocate and how to do things on my own and, um, figure out just how to survive. So for the first few years, it was straight survival mode. And, um, and after that, I, I just got into such a deep depression from all of it. It was, um, everything happened so fast. My emotional, I knew that, that I had not processed everything and I didn't feel like I could because it was, everything was so overwhelming. And when I started to realize that I was just in this deep depression. Um, I, I was like, there's two choices for me. I either learn how to live with this, learn how to find joy in what I have, or I'm not going to make it. Like I can't live feeling like I don't want to get out of bed and feeling like there's no hope and feeling like I'm failing at everything all the time. So, um, So I deep dove into personal development and motivational YouTube videos and 
podcasts and I, um, I, I, dr- I drowned out the negative talk in my head by putting someone else's thoughts in there. So I had headphones on every waking moment of the day, listening to other people going through adversity and being able to come out the other side. And that was, that's not, I don't think that's a cure for everyone, but it, it was a good push for me to get out of depression and just kind of figure out why Remy, why me, like, what is the purpose in this? Like I, I, that was the hardest part is I don't understand why, like why this beautiful, perfect child has this debilitating disorder and autism on top of that. She's not, she's not speaking. She's her behaviors are, are wild. It's, you know, just all of it. So, so kind of what I, what I figured is I had to learn to let go and stop trying to control everything. And um, I think that resisting that acceptance was what was so hard. And once I was able to let that go, I was like, okay, I get it. And so then after that, I was like, I want every, every mom who is struggling like this, I want them to know that they're not alone and that it's okay. And I didn't know if other special needs moms were struggling, but I just figured they have to be like, they, they have to be, I mean, I can't be the only one here. And um, so then after that, I just thought, okay, what can I do to reach out to other, other moms? And so I'm like, I'll write a book. I'll start a blog. I like, (laughs) I don't know. Years ago, I searched for a group of mothers who might understand what I was going through in raising my out-of-the-box kid, and I came up empty-handed. Instead of strengthening my resolve and digging deeper, I gave up and came to the conclusion the group doesn't exist because I'm doing something wrong. Those feelings of shame, guilt, and doubt stayed with me for years, eventually leading me to create the support group community I wished I always had, which then led to instant friendships. These are mothers who don't need you to explain it. They get it. And now my support group community, Mothers Together, is thriving. We hold small group, personalized virtual meetings weekly and catch up on our struggles and wins over the last week. We leave resources and questions for each other on our off of social media private forum, and we even attend virtual live Q&As with expert therapists, OTs, educators, and more. If you haven't yet found your people who not only understand what you're going through, but also can completely relate, Mothers Together is for you. If you're looking for lifelong friendships in a judgment-free, personalized space for weeks, months, or years to come, Mothers Together is for you. Mothers Together opens its doors on the first of every month, but signups start the week before. Head on over to ontheharddays.com slash mothers together to get more information, read testimonials, and sign up. Still have questions after you check out the page? Send me an email at ontheharddays at gmail.com or DM me on Facebook or Instagram, and I'd be happy to chat with you personally. I don't want you to ever feel the way that I felt which was alone, anxious, and depressed. Your people do exist. They're looking for you, too. 
and you'll find them in Mothers Together. Visit OnTheHardDays.com slash Mothers Together for more. Now, back to the episode. And one of the first things is um, I started a blog, but I had no one to share it with. So I'm like, well, I got to start some social media something. So I started on Instagram and started meeting other moms and was like, you know what? I think that this is universal. Going through a diagnosis of any kind is is a journey. It's a, it's a journey that you don't have the answers. And all you know, is that you love your kid more than anything and you want the best for them, but the rest of it, you're just figuring it out all on your own. And, um, so then from, from there, I, I started a podcast and nobody listened to it. And I loved that because I was like, all right, cool. I like, I could say whatever I want because no one's listening to this podcast and um, over time, I was getting emails from from moms and and messages in my DM box on Instagram, and and people were saying like, I thought that I was alone, and and hearing your story and hearing that that I'm not is is making all the difference. And so that 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 is that that's my story. <laughs> my goodness, um, <clears throat> thank you first of all for sharing all of that. Um, There's a lot in there. The first thing that I, I feel like I need to address going back to the day of her first seizure is the trauma that you and your husband went through and your other two kids, like that level of trauma, I imagine is something that will stay with you for life. Like you can't unsee what you saw. Um, thankfully she lived, but, but just the trauma of it. And then to have that happen again, and again, and again, that for me alone, that one piece, just having a seizure disorder is terrifying. And I have no idea how you do it now every day. I mean, how do you let her out of your sight for a second? If you don't know when she's going to have those types of seizures. Okay. I, I would love to, to share a story of my big epiphany moment on this question. Yeah. First of all, the trauma of it is real. I don't, I have not dealt with that because it, it comes back every time she has a seizure. I'm, I'm, I'm a warrior during the clusters that she has. Cause when she has one seizure, she has a lot of them. She doesn't just have one at a time. Um, so we call them clusters and they'll last anywhere from two to five days Um, and, and it's fine during the clusters, but after I notice that it's, it it takes the toll. I'm, I'm just, I don't know how to process it. It's still tough. The only way that I do is I look at how resilient she is. And I tell myself, I have to be just as resilient. I cannot be the weak one. I'm her mom. I have to show up. Um, that's not the fix. It's just what I tell myself to get through it. But um, the the question that you asked is how do you, how do you let her out of your sight? How do you not just basically want to keep her in a bubble? And at the beginning I did, I didn't, um, I didn't let her go on stairs. Uh, she was, she had a pair of eyeballs on her all the time. Like 
every second of the day. We were watching her. And, um, and then I remember someone said, oh, well, are, you know, are you going to send her to school? And I'm like, heck no. <laughs> you mean, no way. She's not, she's never going to school unless I'll go to school with her. And, um, and just the thought of her being in anyone else's care besides me and my husband, it just wasn't, it was just not nothing I was entertaining at all. Um, and I met someone uh, in, in our we have a, a group for parents that have kids with this disorder. And I met a mom who her daughter was just diagnosed and, and, but her daughter was 16. And um, so she came into the group, you know, she said, we've been looking for answers for, for 16 years. And finally we got the answer to why our daughter has, has the seizure disorder. And so I started talking to her a lot. Um, and I was, I was curious how, what happens at 16 years? Cause at the time my daughter was like two and I, I'm, I wanted to know what, what is life like after toddlerhood? And so I got to know her, her name is Dawn and her daughter's name is Madeline. And, um, I started just kind of watching her social media, Dawn's social media and, and Madeline was going to high school and, and they had traveled the world. They were they they went to Egypt and Europe. She lived in other countries and she was involved. She was in the Special Olympics doing um, gymnastics. And and I I remember and, and then the next post, she would be in the hospital because she had a seizure. And so I remember just kind of studying this going, how does she let her daughter do all of travel and go to school and go to dances and have friends that like, I, I couldn't understand that. Like it didn't compute. What if she has a seizure? What if she hurts herself? What, you know, like all of those questions. Well, one day I went on Facebook and there was a post that um, shook me to my core. Madeline had died from a seizure and um, Oh my God. No, no one saw that coming. She was 17, almost 17 and uh, that that changed me. And at first I thought, oh, well, then I need to protect my daughter even more. This is all the more reason to keep her inside my bubble and, and watch her like a hawk. But then um, as I was going through her posts, Dawn's posts, and seeing the life that Madeline had lived, she had traveled. She was bilingual. She... Um, was involved in school and had friends and sorry uh that 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 changed my whole perspective of instead of protecting Remy I have to let her live and um I can't keep her in a bubble because I never know if a seizure is going to take her life we none of us know that but it's possible and if that happens, I will look back at her life and ask, what kind of life did she have? Did she have one where she was stuck in a room somewhere and always with me or my husband? Or did she get to enjoy life and do the things that kids get to do? And I knew that that's, that's the road that I needed to take with her. So 
Um, the challenge is me getting over my fear and letting her live. And um, I've, I've worked really hard to pull away from the idea of just keeping her safe all the time and just saying, you know what, if something happens, we will deal with it. Um, but the, the more important thing is that she's just a kid. So that that's the long answer to your short question. <laughs> oh no, that's really powerful. Um, because my first instinct, just listening to everything you're saying is that I would want to keep her in a bubble too. Uh, definitely, you know, but you've had to completely shift your mental thought process around what it means to raise a child, what it means to really live, what it means. I mean, these are questions that probably many people never even have never even think of. They never even get to this point where you have to contemplate what life do I want for my child on, on this level of this magnitude? Um, so that's, that's, that's an amazing answer. I'm in awe of that decision. That's such bravery and oh, it's courage. Um, and then of course there's the autism piece. Yeah. Now in that regard, do you find, well, let me say it this way. What, what roadblocks do you find keep occurring regarding the autism piece of who she is? What stands in her way? What stands in your way? Um, you know, what do you notice about autism in general that you didn't see coming? Yeah, it's so, you know, I think all of our kids are so complex. Um, for Remy, she has epilepsy and autism. For many other kids, there is you know, co-occurring things that they have to work through and we have to work through. Um, and for Remy, it's like these not polar opposite things, but she's got this medical condition and then she's got autism and it's, you know, it's, uh, at first I thought, well, many people have autism and, and, and live life fine. And she, she'll probably be like that. And, um, and the older that she got, it was very apparent that autism affects every single area of her life. And it's a challenge. It's so challenging. <laughs> She's very, very repetitive. Uh, she didn't start speaking until she was uh, almost five. And her speech is, it's hard to understand her. She doesn't use speech to communicate. Um, if she uses speech, it's just learned um, scripts that she's learned, uh, that she's been taught how to say, like you say, how are you? And she says, good, but only because she's learned how to say that, not because she's, it's a back and forth conversation. Um, and She's very impulsive, which I don't know if that's autism or ADHD. She doesn't have that diagnosis, but I'm almost a hundred percent sure that, that she's got ADHD. <laughs> um, so she's very impulsive, uh, but she's so social. She wants friends. She wants, she just wants attention all the time. Um, but she, you know, it's, it's hard for her. And the older that she gets, it, it's, 
you know, yesterday she saw a couple girls in the bathroom at Costco and she went right up to them. And I know that she wanted just to say hi, but she, she doesn't know how to do that. And so I'm trying to work with her. Say, I, I tell her, say, hi, she goes, hi. And I say, say, what's your name? And so she does that. And sometimes people look at her like, huh? Like what, you know? Um, so the older that she gets, the, the more of, um, the more challenging it is with her and the rest of the world. But in Remy's world, she is the happiest kid you'll ever meet. She still lights up a room. She frustrates everyone. She, uh, <laughs> annoys her sister and you know she from the outside looking in she she is a disabled child but from our house she's just Remy I mean you know so Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah the autism piece it is it seeps into every every scenario every it's it's all the time the epilepsy piece is during her cluster so it's like it's back in the back of our mind. She could have a seizure at any time, but it's not a daily occurrence thing that we deal with. It's just every couple, two to four weeks is what, what when we're dealing with that. But the autism, that's that's all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and how about you? What, how are you doing? <laughs> that's a loaded question, but you know, mentally, how are you? doing with raising a child, especially when we think about the autism part, like when you mentioned the Costco story and it's like, I know that there have been times raising my son where there's been some sort of outburst or emotional breakdown. And I'm caught between both and truly, I mean, let's be real here embarrassment, especially at first when he was little, because I'm worried about what other people are going to think around me of his behavior and what they're going to think of me and my parenting. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, I'm like a fierce advocate, like mama bear, but I'm caught somewhere in that world because nobody understands him like I do. Yeah. But at the same time, sometimes I wish that things would come a little easier to him and that, you know, he would fit in, in that way better. Where do you stand on all of that? I think that any parent that has, has a child, um, a neurodiverse child has their own journey through this topic. It is, it's, it, it takes time. It, it, it's, it's one situation at a time. And, uh, there have, I, I can name a thousand incidents where something happened out in public and, I have responded and reacted in all of the ways that you could. I've screamed at people. I've cried. I've been embarrassed. I've been flustered and frustrated. I've, um, in some situations, I've gotten help. In others, I've been judged. Um, it, 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 and every time you kind of process that situation and and think how am I going to do that better next time? Or what am I learning? Or because, because you leave that situation and you're emotional. Like um, I can't even tell you how many times I've gotten back in the car and just cried. Um, the, the last one that, that was hard was during the pandemic. 
I was already just, it, it's been a, it's been a hard go for our family trying to keep Remy safe from this virus and not uh, all of it. Um, so we went to Walmart. I took, I took the girls to Walmart and we were leaving the store and Remy didn't want to leave. She wanted to do, I don't know what, I can't even remember, but she laid down on the floor and it was right in the, the walkway where everybody leaves after they check out. Like that's where you walk to get out the door. So she, she created a holdup. She was laying on the floor and, and everyone was staring like what's happening. I'm sure that a lot of people were like, get control of your child. Um, and then there's probably, there's probably concern. I don't, I, I don't know, but I, I felt all of the eyeballs on me and, um, she's, she's pretty heavy, but I just scooped her up and, um, walked out of the store and didn't look at anybody. And I got in the car and just cried. And, um, because you want to protect your child too. It was dangerous that she was laying in the middle of the floor. That's, um, and then, and then you start to worry, like, this is how she behaves out in public. I can't protect her forever. Like she doesn't see that this is not good, that, that creating a scene like this is, is dangerous. So you, you worry about your child, you worry about what other people are thinking. You don't know if you handled it well, and you almost want to. You almost want to get a loudspeaker and say, listen, everyone, here's the situation. She's autistic. I am not, I cannot scream at her, yell at her, spank her. That's going to make it worse. So all you judgmental people that are saying, handle your child, I am handling it. And this is the best way to do it. So don't think I'm ignoring, you want to say all of that stuff to people, but like, obviously that's not, (laughs) people probably don't care enough to even listen to all of that. And, and, and then it just makes you think like, do I need to apologize for my child? This is that, this is them. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know Mm. that that's just the, I think that that's why being a mom is, is so hard. It's not, it's not so much trying to, um, teach or train your child like that's one piece of it but it's how do you process all of these situations and learning to become stronger is like the only way you do that is one situation at a time is it like that that's 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 how you get through it is you just you have to become stronger because these situations they don't get easier over time mm-hmm yeah, it's so relatable what everything that you were saying, especially about like the hold up the megaphone and be like, look, people. <laughs> but even if you did do that, I mean, you wouldn't anyway. But even if you did, even I guess social media is kind of like us doing that, right? Mm-hmm. This, mm-hmm. what you do, what I do, it, it's kind of us taking that megaphone, but there's still people who will always have something to say and they'll always have some ridiculous comment that is so judgmental. Um, how do you? sort of hold space for yourself in those moments, like on your weaker moments, how do you, how do you process? How do you come back from that and become your strong self again? Well, I think you, I think that comments and judgment at first will crush you. Um, And if it does, 
There's nothing wrong with you. You're a human being. So yeah, you're going to get, <laughs> I mean, we could trail off into a thousand different ways to talk about this, but a lot, I, I'm blessed because my family has embraced Remy's diagnosis, but for a lot of people, maybe their spouse doesn't or their sister or mom or cousin or best friends. They, they, they don't believe that it's, that it's autism or whatever it is. And, oh, just do this and just don't let them do that or don't let her. Um, and so you get, you don't get judgment just from social media or people out on the streets. A lot of times it's in your own life. And how do you keep going with that? And, and I, I would just say that the way that I look at it is I ask myself, am I doing the right thing here? And, and, and when I can answer, yeah, I know my child, I know, I know that this is good for her or this isn't good for her, or there's areas where I'm like, I don't, I don't have a clue, but when I can ask myself that question and I can answer, no, this is, this is the right thing for her, or we're, we're doing our best here, then it's a little easier to shut out the noise because there's always opinions. <clears throat> there's always opinions and they're going to not be the ones that you have. And you just have to get a little thicker skin, but at the beginning, it's hard. Everything. I used to be offended by everything. And I, and I, and it was because I, I didn't feel strong. I didn't know if I was doing the right thing or I, I, I just had, I had no tools. And when you have no tools, then you're affected by what people say. You question yourself and you second guess yourself. And, and that's, that's just part of the journey. I like uh, over time, you, you get your footing down a little bit and, and it gets, it gets easier. I, it's never easy. I don't think that you ever just become this fierce person all the time, but it gets a little bit easier, I think. Mm -hmm. how, yeah. how about you? Yeah. Well, I was just, what you just said was like hitting me in the core here. When you don't have the tools, that's when you so easily second guess yourself. And that brought me right back to my beginnings where my son, um, the meltdowns, the anger, the screaming, the aggression, the out of control, out of body, all the stuff when he was in uh, he, a toddler preschool age, I was still subscribed to the whole, if you just have stronger boundaries, if you just tighten your discipline, if you just whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I was constantly like, oh, that's true. All right. I'm going to try that. No, that didn't work. Ugh, I'm not good at that. All right. Let me try this one. Let me try this thing. That didn't work. What's wrong with me? what is wrong with me? I am clearly not cut out for this because yeah. the strategies that society tells us to use are not working on my kid. And not only that, but they're actually hurting my relationship with him mm. because he, he, he doesn't trust me like he did before. And I don't even feel like I know him and who am I screaming at the top of my lungs? Like the yeah. whole thing was a hot mess. <laughs> um, and it went on like that for years. And so when you said you don't have the tools or when you don't have those tools, I did not have any tools, none. And I 
have worked with kids my entire life. I am a teacher. I babysat. I worked in daycares, not a single tool to work with and understand neurodiverse children. Not one. Mm -hmm. That's it right there. Because that's the hard part is we parent what we've learned and what we've learned is how we were parented, how our friends parent, how, uh, you know, the other family that we know how they parent, you see parents every day, everywhere you go, you, you see it and you take little pieces from what you see and you kind of form your own. This is how I'll be as a mom. And then you get this neurodiverse child and you can't pull from any of those situations because they don't apply. And so you're like, do I make it up? Do I, do I try these other tactics? And you try them, you try them and it explodes in your face. Like, you know, the, the yelling part, I was a yeller to my boys. Like I didn't know anything. I just, they would do something. What are you doing? You know, I would like, that's, that's, that was my go-to. And then with Remy, I, I started listening to these um, special education teachers and speech therapists. And we, we started ABA therapy and I started to listen to what they were saying. And I'm like, oh, well, yelling actually makes it worse. And I don't want to make anything worse. So I think that, that, that you, you start to learn things from different places and then you make your own, you make up your own thing with your kid that you can take little nuggets from what you learn and, and, and see, could that work or how can I change that to make it work? Mm -hmm. And, and that's when you start getting more self-confidence, but you have to throw those, those books away. The one, the, the old books that society uses the, the rules and the, the way to discipline, they do not work. They don't work. And like you said, a lot of times they're more, they're harmful. So, um, just, just learning one little thing at a time that that's how you do it. Like you don't, Mm -hmm. you don't change everything overnight. You just learn one little trick. Mm -hmm. The first, the first trick that I learned and, and we use it to this day, sometimes it backfires. I, I do see that, but it was, it was the very, very first thing that I learned trying to get Remy to do anything was always impossible. Um, eat your food. Nope. Not going to do that. Do this. Nope. Just, just nothing, nothing I ever wanted her to do ever, ever worked. And the very first thing that I learned was do like the first, this, then that. So if you want, want her to eat, you say, uh, first eat a bite and then you could have, uh, your toy or whatever, whatever it is that they wanted. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's easy. I totally do that. And then I started noticing, no, I'm more of the, okay, well you could play with your toy, but you have to promise you're going to eat that food when you're done. And and I started to go, oh, I see. There's no, there, why would she ever want to, to do what I want if she's already doing what she wants? So that little trick, okay, if you want to play with the toy, first eat your bite of food, then you can play with the toy. That was a game changer. And that is just one little tiny, tiny trick. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's what you do. You just kind of pick up little things and, and try them and mm. ignore everyone else, really. Yes. And I think there's a difference between learning strategies and changing your entire parenting style. Like, and that's a great example. 
I thought that if I was supposed to be firm, really firm, like never let it go. Like, this is what you said. You're the authority, hold it down. And if I did that, then I lost myself because I'm not really that kind of a person and that didn't fit me. Whereas something like you just mentioned, it's like a trick. You still get to use your own mama voice. It still sounds like you. Yeah. It still is your warmth and your compassion with a strategy in place. That's great. That's what I didn't have. (laughs) And so I was trying to change my whole voice. I was trying to change my whole persona and, and, and it's not who I am. It's just not. And I was picking the wrong battles and, and aiming at the wrong targets because that's what everybody else thought I should do. Yeah. And, and so listening to that inner voice is also, I think, hard. And if you can get there and get into that place, um, that's a game changer as well. Yeah. I think that, that, that is, that is the most beautiful part of this is we get to deconstruct what we've been taught and actually parent to what our kids need. And that's really what we've wanted the entire time. The authoritarian do what I say or else that is just a way of getting control. And that like, I, that never felt right to me, but that's what I would resort to do it. Cause I said, so, you know, when I'd be frustrated or whatever, but um, it, it's, it's like, I don't know, you, you, uh, you can be yourself and then you, and you can nurture your kids at the same time. Like, um, you know, some kids can't be yelled at that. It it hurts them. It, it affects them. But, um, if you can get on their level and give them empathy and compassion, then they're open. They're not so shut down. And I think that that's probably the problem when, that's the parenting style is do as I say, is it just makes a kid shut down. Mm. And then I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and just all the different things that you hear. Um, yeah. But you hear things, but who are we talking to? Are we talking to neurotypical kids? Like you said, when you got the autism diagnosis, here's a pamphlet, good luck, which is totally accurate. But hello, like I have no clue how to raise this child besides going, I can, I have my own voice and finding that is, I think a big, huge piece, but you still need a little background information and society doesn't know about it. Society, we are not taught. We, we don't learn it in school. Um, teachers are not given this information. Oh no, no, Uh, it's it's not, not good. No, no. Mm. But, um, the, the biggest parenting advice that I give to anybody who is struggling is you might not have the answers. You might not have the tools. You might not have the strategies. You might not know everything, but the, the biggest thing that you have to listen to is your intuition that that will be your strongest guide and it'll never lead you wrong. It'll always lead you to the place that, that you want to be. And it, it'll be in the best interest of you and your child and your family. And if you have no other person helping you along, don't ignore your intuition. If it and and that it's really as simple as if something doesn't feel right, it's not right. Investigate that, but listen. If something feels good and great, and and you have this 
this like opening up inside of you, then lean into that. And if you just do that, you will find the answers that you're looking for. You'll find the direction you need to go. Um, There's a lot of decisions that you have to make when you're raising a special needs child and they can be paralyzing because you think if I make the, if I make this decision, it could ruin their life. If it goes bad, if I make this other decision that could ruin their life, if it goes bad and, and, and you're stuck with this, it doesn't matter what I choose. It could end up being the wrong decision. And, and what I, what I tell people, cause someone told me this really, really helpful is try it and see, see how it is, see how it feels. If it doesn't feel good, take them out, go do a different thing. Nothing is permanent. And, um, when someone told me that I was like, Oh, I could do that. I don't have to have this whole thing mapped out and planned out. No. Should I put them in this school or that school? I don't know. Try it. See how you feel. See how they do. If something doesn't feel right, you can ask questions, you can change things, or you can end up taking them out, trying something else. But that's what we have to do that. That's because, you know, Things change all the time and those decisions, we have to make them all the time, but, um, just leaning into your intuition, it will guide you. That's amazing advice. Amazing advice. And I wish that I had that in my head five years ago. And the other thing that I always think about too, is especially with kids like ours, you always hear, be consistent, be consistent. I feel like that's the one thing, Mm -hmm. but really it's be inconsistent because it depends. It depends on so many factors. You know, you have to be flexible. You have to be flexible. It cannot always be this one way. Um, and allowing myself to parent differently based on the situation. Oh, so much guilt. I relieved myself from, I was feeling so guilty before. And when I was trying to be like, you're supposed to always do X, Y, and Z, you can't stray from that. No, no. Nope. And so that's been a game changer too. When you, when you have these, these kind of like rigid rules in your head, when they don't go your way, it crushes you. Like I wanted a family picture and I got my family, all these matchy matchy outfits. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just want one picture. I don't have a pic, you know, I just want one. That's all I want is just one picture. Well, Remy didn't like the dress that I got. And she wanted to wear like pajamas or something. I don't know. She wanted, she didn't want to wear, she wanted to wear the most ridiculous unmatchy outfit ever. And that crushed me. I'm like, you're throwing it all. Like I was so like, just, I just want one. And, and, and you don't want to wear this dress, but it just, just put it on for like, and, and that that is when we crumble is when we have some, an idea in our head and we don't think it's a big deal. Just the simple thing is that we want. And when it doesn't go our way or the way we thought it, I mean, man, that can throw you into a spiral, you know, going on a trip. We didn't leave on time. Everyone's crying. It's like, well, you have to be flexible because it's probably not going to go like you think it's going to go. No, but it is still disappointing. I would be oh, also yeah. really oh, yeah. mad about the picture. I love getting a good family picture, but no, my son, every time he's like, I'm not going to smile. Like, just so you know, I'm not smiling. I'm like, great. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Um, what kind of bribery, you know, n- none, the answer is none. And he will make it worse and flip out if we push it too far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So it's those expectations, it, but, but yet you're human and you are a mom yes. who just wants a good family picture and that's okay too. Um, totally. It know. is. Yeah. I see. But um, you just, yeah, but you, you constantly get disappointed in situations like that. So I, I'm trying, I'm trying to not, you know, get worked up about what I want to happen, but it it's true. You're human and it happens. And yeah. Well, I think you are a fabulously wonderful human because what you're doing and by your own social media, putting out information, putting out pictures, advocating endlessly, um, and doing something like this and sharing your whole story beginning to end. This is where the power lies. It's in the telling of the stories. It's in the sharing. I really do believe that. And so I guarantee I have moms listening who are raising a kid like yours and who might want to reach out and say hi, or, or ask for your advice or your support. Yeah. Um, are you open to that? Oh, of course. Of course. Of course. How can they find you? What are the best <clears throat> ways to be in touch with you? Um, well, okay. So, uh, so I have a podcast called moms talk autism. It's um, five uh, autism moms. We, we met over Instagram and we were like, let's start a podcast. And we talk about all of these different topics of schools and and marriage and having other siblings and it's just like a round table discussion and so you can find that podcast anywhere um or you can find me on Instagram is where I hang out I do have Facebook but I don't go there um so Jody Warshawski on Instagram is how you can find me there and you can DM me or you can, you know, how, however, however yeah. you can get a hold of me is, yeah. it would be great. So the podcast, um, Instagram or um, my website, jodywarshawski.com, which awesome. I need to work on. But... <laughs> One thing at a time, you have four kids. Um, that is okay. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Um, and that's how I found you too, through, through Instagram and DMs. And that's great. Yeah. Um, so Jody, just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and, and for being here. Thank you for asking me. I'm so honored. And, and I love that. um, I love that our kiddos could bring us together that even though it's not something that we chose and that we wanted necessarily um, the blessings because of it are they're pouring out. And, and one of those is that it can connect me and you, it can connect us and other moms and other families. And I think once you, once you have friends who have neurodivergent children, it's like you've up-leveled friendships Yes, because it's no more small talk, chit chat. It's like, let's talk about the real stuff. Yes. And when you have friendships like that, it's like, I don't, I, I'm, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's harder to tolerate the small talk and stuff. So I I love that. that. So anyway, I'll stop talking. No, I'm so glad that, that, um, that we are connected and thank you for having me here. And I love your podcast. You're doing an amazing job and, um, I'm grateful for it. And I, I am a hundred percent sure that your listeners are grateful as well. Mm, Thank you so much. Thanks for listening today. 
If you would like to talk with me personally, where we can chat and just get to know each other like old friends, I would love to do a discovery call with you. Go to my website, ontheharddays.com, and click on Schedule a Call. And if you're not already subscribed to this podcast, please do so so that you get the latest when they roll out. Not to mention, please leave a review if you feel like this episode spoke to you. That way, the podcast will be shown to more mothers. And finally, you can find me on Instagram at ontheharddays with dots in between each word, or in my free Facebook community, On the Hard Days Podcast and Community. If you are feeling isolated in your parenting journey, I encourage you to reach out through any of these means so that I can connect you with your people and support you in whatever way you need.